If you'll go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you see me here, I've noticed I've been doing it more, and the doctor said this several years ago, that I'd, be do, that I'd start to do this more and more as I got older, where eventually your eyes don't focus, you know, and you have to, you, you put them on so I can see your faces, and y'all don't look like blurry and whatnot, and then I take them off so I can read. But anyway, the doc, I don't know why I'm, I'm wasting time. I've got a lot in front of me. But it's just I keep doing back and forth. But he told me, or she told me, that I would need to get what's called bifocals. Anyway, that was that's discouraging to hear. <laughs> uh, I just don't think of myself at that age. And no offense to anybody that's there and has them. I just, I just hadn't thought of myself. At, I don't like to hear those things. And so I deny it. Uh, but I don't deny the resurrection, all right? And that's what we're talking about today. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to read through verse 19. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I passed on to you... As most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim... And so you have believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so too is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only... We should be pitied more than anyone. If you're taking notes this morning, you can do so uh, there on the back of the bulletins. And the title is, and you can see that even just from looking at the text, maybe it's a heading like this in your Bibles, but the resurrection is essential. All right, for many today, the resurrection is what crazy people believe, Right? I was listening to Joe Rogan interviews several years ago, uh, interview Candace Owens, and they were talking about, well, they got talking about religion, and Candace mentions this guy that she was working with uh, at the time named 
Charlie Kirk. Uh, she says that he's an evangelical Christian, and she clarified in that conversation there with Joe Rogan that she is not. And Joe Rogan, he just couldn't help himself, but he stopped her, and, and he's saying, wait a second, you mean this super smart guy is an evangelical Christian? And she confirms, and, and Joe Rogan, with great surprise, questions the idea that someone as smart uh, as this guy apparently is, I guess, uh, that he questions this idea that somebody with intelligence could believe that a man died and then resurrected three days later. And when he presses her, man, he really believes this stuff, and he seems to like want to talk about that. She says, yes, uh, but then she begins to deflect and, and say, well, you'd have to talk to him about it. I haven't really gotten into that. I'm not the, the person who should be de debating about uh, religious ideas, and on she goes. It seems clear by Joe Rogan's questions, he is shocked that someone who would be considered intelligent believe in the resurrection, and Candace wants to distance herself from the idea altogether. Although in recent interviews, she declares Christ is king, I haven't heard a response to that. Uh, the idea, the point in me sharing this is that the idea, though, of the resurrection is absurd. And we will see, I think, even during this Christmas season, that there will be lots who want to claim uh, Christ is king, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean they would want to cozy up uh, to the essential truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, that there is a resurrection. Certainly, we want to, do we not? And I believe as we press into this chapter uh, that we will be encouraged. It's unlikely, as we look at chapter 15, uh, that the church there in Corinth did not believe in a future place after death. In fact, as we'll have to deal with in the near future, uh, this practice of baptizing the dead suggests that they did believe there was future for the dead. Uh, just not a bodily future, only spiritual life after death. But the ramifications of the denial of the resurrection for the Christian are serious, and we're going to get into those today. For the next four weeks, we'll be in chapter 15. Uh, it's all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. If there is not a resurrection, there wouldn't be Christmas. We wouldn't celebrate the birth of Christ if he hadn't died, and we wouldn't celebrate and sing about his death if he hadn't raised. In the resurrection, we see that it was indeed uh, the God-man that was born, as planned, as foretold by the Scriptures. This point is clarified for us in our first section this morning here in our text. The gospel is clearly presented to them, as we see beginning there in chapter 15, verse 1. Paul's saying, hey, this gospel's been clearly presented to you, but they had drifted off course in some way. Somehow, an essential part of the gospel message of Jesus Christ was let go of. So Paul writes, I think, to a church that recognizes that the message is fundamental to their faith, but they have picked up on this idea that believing in the resurrection isn't necessary. So he begins with this phrase there in verse 1 of chapter 15, I want to make clear to you, and it's a kind of rebuke, all right? I'll have you know, he wants to tell them. So it's not a, we shouldn't think of it as a reminder 
It's not a, hey, brothers, remember the gospel. Let's meditate on it together. No, it's, I need to be very clear with you, right? I need to tell you. I need to make clear the gospel, verse 1 there, that I preached to you. Look at it. He says, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are now being saved. This gospel that is fundamental to your life, there are some essential aspects to this message that you uh, go poking around on any one of these essential components and say, ah, we don't really need that, or you dismiss one of these essential components and you uh, change the entirety of the message. So he preached this gospel message to them. They received it. It says, as we just read, that they are taking their stand on it. Then look at verse 2. They are being saved by, and he adds, if you hold to it. Right? These are people that are looking to the message of the gospel to save them. Okay? Now, regardless of whether you believe in the doctrine of eternal security or the perseverance of the saints, people that believe those things, right? People, both people on both sides of that debate understand, right? They recognize if you don't hold to the gospel message, right? That shows, as it says here, that you believed in vain. That means you don't get the blessings of the good news, right? The the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you just, you just come to it for just a, a moment in a church service and then walk away from the faith, you've not believed, right, is what it's getting at there. Uh, if you just hold to the gospel for just a season of your life and then abandon it, then you have not experienced saving faith. It's a point worth highlighting there. But he goes on there as he moves into verse 3 saying and talking to them about what they're holding to. Look there at verse 3. And we're given some very uh, essential, fundamental aspects of the message. He says, I passed on to you as, I encourage you to highlight that, as most important, most important, what I also received. Most important, essential. And we'll see uh, that one of the essential truths of this most important message, he goes on to say, is the resurrection. Now, I want to stop and just take a, a moment to say that this isn't supposed to be this most important truth that's being talked about here, this, this gospel message, right, isn't supposed to be pit against uh, the previous 14 chapters that we just studied for the past year or however long it's been, right? And I've heard this. I've heard this, uh, this truth right here, this text right here, uh, not just related to the previous 14 chapters, but I've heard this most important thing right there pitted against other doctrines of scriptures. I've had, for example, parachurch organizations or pastors come and want to partner with us, and they lead with this line, I don't want to get caught up in all the teaching, all the doctrine. My thing is the gospel. All that other stuff is minor league stuff. And they point right here and say, see, this is the most important thing. Ignore the rest of it. But I want to be careful, right? That's, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul didn't write 14 chapters, okay, and, and then get to this point and say, oh, man, scratch all that. I should have just started here. I'm sorry. Uh, I wasted so much of your time. No, he's saying all this is 
a guide to the trouble that your church will face. Right? Right? All these 14, it's, it's a guide to that. But it hangs on, okay, this most important thing that I passed on to you. It's not separate from your past or separate from your church life or your family life or your work life. This message, right? Right? It's, it's not uh, at the expense of everything else, right? It's most important because it ties everything together. It undergirds much of our doctrine in the church springs forth from this gospel. It is the gospel that gives us eyes to see and experience creator God and his beauty and his truth, right? It is the gospel that helps us see his intended design and purposes for, for us as humans, for humanity overall, Right, the gospel takes us back, we would even argue, to, to see that it enables us to, to live uh, in that place where God intended us to live. It takes us back to the garden in that sense. Right? Enable us to embrace and, and live in and want to live in this, this place of happy obedience in the details of our everyday life. Right? This is the gospel invitation. It enables us, it's the gospel. That enables us to bask in the glory of the doctrine of God, the truth of God, the riches of God. The most important message. And he details some of those essential aspects. So let's take a look at them in order. First, right there, verse 3 says, For I passed on to you, most important, what I also received, that... So we're going to take one at a time and go over them quickly. And first... Look there in the text. What does it say? Christ. Stop right there. Christ. Don't read the next word. Just look first at Christ. Just look at it. Look at him, rather. Incarnate deity. You know, I, I, I was encouraged as I was reading somebody else to just stop right there. I had messed on. I had moved on and missed just a fundamental detail here. Christ. So we need to stop and look there. Look at Christ. Circle Christ. Highlight Christ. Incarnate deity. Christ. Emmanuel. God with us. Christ. Our promised Messiah. Son of David. We have sang it. Christ. The newborn king. Christ. The perfect one. Christ. Our humble Lord. Christ. Who bled and died. Now, that is the next essential aspect of the gospel, died. See it there. Christ died for our sins. What does this mean? Each of us a sinner, sinner by birth, sinner by choice, and God was kind enough to make us, to give us breath, to give us the breath of life. And yet, in our response, what do we do? We fail to live our life without him in our mind. Worse than that, even though he made me, right? He made us, he made humanity. Oftentimes we don't think to serve him. We instead think to serve ourselves. The point here is we sin. And worse than that, right, we see some of the laws that he gives, right, and they seem reasonable, most not difficult or demanding, but we see them and we sin more. We ignore. 
I sin. You sin. And we willfully sin against him. So Christ, there in the passage, though we know that that he sees us in all these various places that we find ourselves in, he sees us stuck. He sees us unaware. He sees us ignorant. Not just those. We are not without excuse. At the same time, he sees us in our stupid and willful sin against him, right? He sees us for who we are. Christ, though, our humble Lord, even in seeing all of that, died for my sin, for your sin. And what does this mean? His death was on our behalf. It was for us. It was for you. In our place. He died in our place. You see, our sins deserve the wrath of God that Christ endured when he died for us. Our sin against God, right, is it not? And he is right, because our sin is against God, he is right to give us a consequence. He is right to to look at his creation and and to say, you've got to pay. There is actually, and it's important for us to just grapple with that because I think in in calling one another to confess the gospel to others, we've got to see that there is nothing odd about that, (laughs) right? There is nothing odd about that. We demand in our our human uh, horizontal relationships, we demand all the time that people pay for much less violations. See, we are born, and here we are, created by God, and we go on to live our life in violation. But by Christ's death, he paid for all those who would put their trust in him. He didn't violate, right? He didn't violate the law. He didn't violate. There's no sin. He's perfect. But he paid the consequence for our violations. And God tells us that the wages, the cost for our sin is death. His judgment is righteous. Our sins separate us from the one who made us, right? And we deserve his judgment. But there it says, Christ died in our place. Christ, by his death, took the punishment you and I deserve. And he took that punishment on himself. And it says this happened, look there, according to the scriptures. And that is a reference to the Hebrew Bible, okay? What we know as the Old Testament. The emphasis, according to the scriptures, is letting us know that this was the plan of God. It is not an accident. God the Father had a plan to redeem both Jews and Gentiles, to bring people, as we have just sang, from all nations, and to bring them into right relationship with himself through the death of his son. The scriptures predicted According to the scriptures, it's saying the scriptures predicted this greatest gift of Christmas would come through the offspring of a woman. You can see Genesis 3 for this. This offspring, this incarnate deity would strike the serpent head, serpent's head. That is what? A death blow. This son, it says we learn, would also suffer. He'd be judged by God as if a sinner. And the wrath of God would then be laid on Christ. 
He would die, buried in the ground. But through that suffering, he provides this most important victory, raised on the third day, proving his power to buy our freedom, proving his work at the cross was accomplished so that you and I can be made right with God. So that you and I can enjoy the, hear it, hear it. Here's what we have so much to be happy to talk about, right? Our Christ during this season and make sure people know him for who he is and what he's done because they too can have this opportunity because of this most important message to enjoy the love of God, to enjoy the kindness of God instead of the wrath. His power to redeem us, to adopt us, to free us, by making payment for our sins, this power is seen and experienced on that third day. Completed at the cross, but its effectiveness is seen because the tomb is empty. When he was raised, our text says, look there, verse 4 now, we're there. According to the scriptures, right again. It's, it's mentioning that again after the resurrection. The resurrection, we see uh, uh, that this also was the plan. An essential part of the plan. All sacrifices to this point that they had to offer again and again, year after year, none of those sacrifices resurrected. But the scriptures foretold of the redemptive plan of God that a sacrifice would resurrect. There is one who will satisfy the wrath of God. If you mark it on your uh, notes there, I'll read it to you. But Isaiah 53, 10 speaks to this. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. So here we see, and I think we're accustomed, because I know we've taught on this before, on that first part of Isaiah 53, 10, we see the prediction about the death of Christ, right? That it pleased and satisfied the wrath of God. But then the second half of that verse there in Isaiah 53, 10, it says, he will see his seed and prolong his days. This is the scriptures that testify about the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, the Son of God who was crushed to atone and make payment for our sins, because of the resurrection, the Son Jesus will see, it's saying there in Isaiah 53.10, it's saying this Son Jesus will see his seed, that he will see his offspring. And what on earth does that mean, right? I didn't know that Jesus got married and had kids after his resurrection. That's not what it's saying, okay? Well, what does it mean then? How, how's it speaking to him? Well, if we look to John 1.12, it says there in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Folks, Jesus isn't just the reason for the season. He is the hope for humanity. Not just during the days of December, but every day. Those who believe in Jesus, those who believe and put their trust in the resurrected Christ. It's saying there in John 1.12, and even predicted there in Isaiah 53 that those who put their trust in the resurrected Christ become the offspring, become the children of God. And again, speaking of the resurrection, it says, still in Isaiah 53.10, he will prolong his day. This also points to the fact that Jesus will resurrect and live forever as the Son of God. 
You look at other scriptures that speak to this, like Psalm 16.10, we see that God told us long before it happened that the resurrection was going to happen. And then back to 1 Corinthians 15 for further, further proof of its reality. Paul moves from the scriptures, looking at the Old Testament, to verse 5, making it clear to them. Look there at verse 5. Hey, you know this resurrection happened because he appeared to people, right? And not just one or two so that it could be dismissed. But he appeared to a bunch of people. Look there at verses 12. Or excuse me, look there at verses 6. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. He goes on to say most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. Then, to, then Paul says, he also appeared to him. Last of all, verse 8, look there. As one born at the wrong time, he, Paul says, he also appeared to me. And we know from Paul's testimony Right, that this happened on the road to Damascus. He was in the middle of living a life dedicated to persecuting the church. And then as he's doing that, you hear that? Like he's totally against God. And God visits him, right? Jesus appeared. Now this is why, verse 9 now, Paul calls himself the least. Look there, verse 9. Not worthy, but by the grace of God. Verse 10, let's read it. Verse 9. For I am the... Least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, he says, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in or with me. See, since God's grace is not in vain, Paul was changed. There's proof, right? Paul is not a good person. Paul is, and you might find yourself in this category. I actually hope you do, or have. Paul is very undeserving to steward anything of God's. And yet he is given this good gift of grace. And Paul is saying here, it wasn't a wasted gift. I am what I am. Meaning, I am completely undeserving, hear this, and at the same time, completely transformed. Persecuted the church, and now, as an apostle, I hold the highest office in the church. I am both messed up in my past, but I am good in my present and my future. And you can't say that, and he certainly doesn't say any of that, and be right about it, but by the grace of God, right? That's how he's able to say this. Like he says elsewhere, I'm a chief of sinners. And yet, at the same time, he's a chief saint, if you will, in the church. Take Paul's background in his current work in the church. He says it here in speaking of the work, that by the grace of God, he worked harder, accomplished more. I shouldn't be where I'm at, is what he's saying. But can we say this? I I certainly can. I think anyone in Christ can say this. But man, I shouldn't be where I'm at, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. (laughs) By the grace of God, right? God's grace finds me while I'm not qualified, and God's grace qualifies. 
That's for each and every one who puts our faith in Christ. I am what I am, right? Sinner, saved, right? I am what I am. Lost man, found. Dead man, living. I worked hard at sinning, and now I work harder at saving. And his point is saying, I work harder than any of you, isn't to compare and say he is better, but to emphasize how great God's grace is, and specifically how that great grace and work is connected to the resurrection. He was working hard to kill the message of Christ. There he is. He's out there. We're on the road to Damascus. He's working hard to kill the message of Jesus Christ, and now, by God's grace, he is working harder than any to proclaim the message of the resurrection, that Christ is alive. And you can be saved from your sin. The resurrection is essential to the gospel message. That is the first point. This is what Paul received and saw himself there on the road to Damascus, a resurrected Christ. And now we transition even there in verse 11, kind of comes to the end of that first point, moves us into chapter 12, or excuse me, verses 12 through 19 to make clear that the resurrection is essential also to our faith. Verse 11, if you're looking at it, we proclaimed a gospel that includes a resurrection. You believed it. You put your trust in it. That is faith. Then look there at verse 12. How is it then? He calls out. He's calling them out, man. He's saying, how is it then that some of you can say there is not a resurrection from the dead? How can you say this? Then he makes it crystal clear, unpacking the argument for the futility of their faith. If there is no resurrection, look there at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And you know what, church? So is your faith. So here he makes that transition from the resurrection is essential to the message to say, hey, it's essential to our faith. The message we are putting our faith in is all about the resurrected Christ. And if there is no bodily resurrection for humans, then Christ, hear the, hear the point, argument, then Christ, who had a real body, who was incarnate deity, who was in the flesh, if people in the flesh don't rise, then Christ did not raise. And if he has not been raised, then all the work that you're doing, inviting people to believe in a resurrected Christ, is a waste. All the preaching, where Paul's point is saying, all the preaching by all the apostles that they're doing, all of that is a joke. Wow. That's intense, isn't it? And of course, into verse 14, we carry on, he clarifies the obvious implication that so is your faith. It's a joke. Your faith, dependent on the gospel message of a Christ that resurrected, if that message is a joke, then so too is the faith that that message produced. You see, that's what he's saying. If the gospel doesn't have a resurrected Christ, it spells bad news, not good news. And as people out there trying to, like even us, even us as a church, as as Right? We're, we're out there as people, and that would be the case for the Corinthians there. Right? As people out there trying to, to serve humanity, right? We are the worst kind of groups trying to serve humanity if Christ has not been saved. 
if, excuse me, if Christ has not been resurrected. We're the worst. <laughs> because, yeah, our entire message, you see, is very distinct from all the other groups that are trying to help humanity. You see that? And so it's, it's all that we're doing, it's a waste. It's useless. That's what 15, verse 15, talking about false witnesses. If you just meditate on that for a little bit, you get like, wow, it's all a waste. Everything. If Christ hasn't been resurrected, everything that the church is doing, that these guys have done, it's all a waste. It's all for, and some people, maybe Tim, say, well, no. We've still been very helpful. And I think if you're tempted, if you're thinking to go there, like hopefully as we meditate more on the gospel, you see that if you're tempting to, tempted to say there that, that, that without a resurrection, ah, oh, there's still a lot that the church has done and good, to, then you have some other gospel that you are peddling and believing. Because we are not, the church is not simply coming along trying to offer counsel on how to best order a person's life. Our aim as the church is not uh, to be wise sage and sages and, and offer good advice or uh, simply to be a social help to people. This is not our message. Our message is to call people to respond to what God has done. But if God has not done, then we're liars. And what is really messed up is not that we have lied about a fellow human, but worse, as it says there in the text, we have misrepresented God to people. And it's really a terrible lie as well to tell people that God has done something for them that he has not done. Specifically, that in raising Christ, this is what we're telling people, that in raising Christ, that he has provided forgiveness of sins and victory over their own death. But if Christ is not raised, then we testify falsely about God's saving acts for them. We're telling people, hey, respond to these saving acts that God has done for you by surrendering your entire life to Christ who was raised. And if we are lying about all that, that y'all, that makes us terrible people. Uh, people that give that kind of false hope, <laughs> what a waste. Wasting our time as well. Wasting their time with this empty message. See, our faith is not in some novel idea of servanthood. It is not in some novel idea of love. Our faith is not a Carl Rogers humanistic idea of unconditional regard. Just basic acceptance and support of people regardless. These things are not the gospel. Now, of course, our culture wants, hear this, and that's why I started with what I started with, but our culture wants that to be the gospel. And so we will sing, we will hear people sing, especially this month, Christ is King, and proclaim that, but for some hearts that sing this, it would make no difference if they were singing of some better version of a Carl Rogers type. For many, the gospel of Jesus is just hope for, a desire for a better version of this life. And certainly a faith in a Messiah that cannot save humanity from its greatest threat would be the greatest waste of our time. Verse 17, we see even more clearly why it's so terrible and why it would be such a waste 
for those that we'd be misleading and for ourselves. It says verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. There, it just cuts right to it. The claims of Christ, the claim of Christ to be God, to be able to forgive sins, if, hear this, that's what he claimed, right? If there existed a tomb with his decayed corpse still inside, we would rightly conclude that he was not God and had no authority to forgive us and cleanse us. And as the text text says, we would still be in our sins. The greatest problem humanity faces would remain unresolved. No salvation available. Verse 3, though, as we already looked at, where the gospel message tells us that Christ died for our sins, right? If he had not resurrected, this would amount to nothing. Christ's Christ's death would accomplish nothing if he did not resurrect. You see, you could put it like this as an equation. Christ dead equals Christ condemned equals you and I condemned. But what we are told is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. Why? Because Christ is alive. Christ is alive equals Christ justified equals you and I justified. Now, the idea that is presented to us here in chapter 15, this idea of being still in our sins, means that we would be unable to walk in the newness of life that he calls us to, like over in Romans 6, where we learn that we are raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, as we will proclaim when we baptize Tara here in a moment. Now, verse 18 We are told of another terrible implication if Christ has not been raised. Let me read verse 18. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. So this is saying, hey, if Christ's body saw decay, right? Now we learn actually in the Old Testament scriptures that it didn't see decay. And we, of course, see him. He appeared. We already went through that, right? But if Christ's body did see decay, if he's still in the grave... As we see here in verse 18, he has no authority and we have no hope for him to resurrect our dead bodies from the grave. Notice the language there in verse 18 of those who had died. Assuming Paul used a phrase they understood, he says there the language, those, look how they describe them, those who have fallen asleep in Christ. They use that kind of language, right? The power of the resurrection changed the reality of death for the Christian in this life. You see, with a resurrected Christ, death is no longer a sting, as we will see as we press forward in this chapter. Death is no longer a sting, but it is a gain. Without it, though, they are lost and perish with everyone else. No longer can look at this, as Paul describes it here, as taking a sleep. And waiting to be with their Savior. Right? If Christ has not resurrected, they just perish like everybody else. 19. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. This does not mean that our hope in Christ has no benefit to this life, but that the resurrection of Christ undergirds all those benefits. If he is not resurrected, 
then all that we claim for this life and the next amounts to nothing. As we continue to explore this chapter in the following weeks, we will see, and I pray clearly in our hearts, that this is not the case, that we are not in a pitiable situation, but in fact we are in the most desirable situation. Right? The resurrection of Christ makes this clear. That his work to wipe our sinful slate clean, it's been accomplished, church. Will you be encouraged with that this morning? And if you look to him by faith, it is not a waste. Right? You are not still in your sins. In fact, this morning you can have your sins forgiven right now if you put your faith in Christ. And when we put our faith in Christ, be encouraged if you have done that. Be encouraged that you are not still in your sins. Be encouraged that they have been put away as far as the east is from the west. And I want to end this morning with some meditation on this point from Charles Simeon. Who said, when, do you, when you die, if you've put your faith in Christ, when you die, you will not perish with the ungodly world. But will go to hear that, but will go to take possession of a kingdom. Did you hear that, Christian? When you die, you will not perish with an ungodly world, but will go to take possession of a kingdom. Far from being pitied, isn't it? Right? Because Christ has risen, we would be the least pitied. For because of him. We will not perish with the rest who deny the love of God. But as, it, as, Charles, as I just quoted there, but we will take possession of a kingdom. You and I have put our faith in Christ. We will have a crown of glory on our head. You will have a, a golden harp in your hand. You will be seated in your Savior's throne there, right there on your Savior's throne. Amazing. And you shall sing of his presence forevermore. Charles Simeon goes on, happy, so it may help, it helped me to just close my eyes, and so as I just read even just some meditation points from him, as he continues on with this point here from these verses, happy soul, actually, so, so not pitied, not despairing soul this morning, because Christ has rep- uh, resurrected, right? So, happy soul, knowing this. Knowing what manner of love is this that the Father has given you. You that are highly favored of the Lord, this morning rejoice. Rejoice, you servant of the Most High God. Because your Savior, possessed of all power in heaven and in earth, watches over you continually. And he gives his angels charge over you. He gives you everything that is for your good. And though perhaps he deals with you not exactly as you might wish, he is daily preparing you for glory and making you ready for your inheritance. Oh, then love and serve this risen Savior and set your affections on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. You see, he is risen. Let it be your endeavor to keep your conversation in heaven And while you are living upon the Savior's fullness, oh, strive to live to the glory of his name. So will you adorn your holy profession 
See, this is the true profession of your life if you're a Christian, no matter what your career is. So will you adorn your holy profession, and when he shall come again to receive you to himself, he will welcome you with these delightful words. Come, thou blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The resurrection, church, is essential. And we will see next week that it guarantees ours. Merry Christmas. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to meditate on you and come together as your church this Sunday morning. We ask God that as we continue to witness what you have done and are doing in the life of this church and in the heart of Tara, God, that, that you will impress these truths from your word more, uh, more and more. Just anchor them into our souls and our hearts and our minds. That one, it would give us that, that rest, that peace, that comfort in knowing that, that this message is true. <laughs> And that your resurrection is for real. It happened. And God, that we have a hope that you have indeed forgiven us of our sins. Yet you have cleansed us. And we can, by faith in you, hold on to this gospel message that places us in right relationship with you. God, we thank you for this promise. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for this hope that we have. And we ask now that you'd be with us uh, as we press forward and hear from Tara. Be with her as she shares with us her testimony about what you have accomplished in her life. Certainly, this is also evidence that you have resurrected. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.